guys. How's it going? Please uh, open your Bible to John 15. That's where we're hanging out this morning. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 17 together. And uh, you can find this on page 586 in those Bibles that you might have grabbed when you came in here today. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that, that with you this morning. But uh, we are going on this uh, incredible journey through the Upper Room Discourse. It's this famous teaching that Jesus has with his disciples leading up to the moment, uh, really the day before uh, he goes and he's crucified. And then days before he walks out of the grave uh, victoriously. And so we're going to be walking through this upper room discourse leading up to Good Friday, Good Friday and Easter very fittingly. And uh, this morning I'm really pumped though because uh, we get to sit in the goodness that is John 15. And uh, it does, it takes uh, so much discipline within me to not just do uh, 17 sermons in verses 1 through 17. I love John 15. It's literally one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It is the namesake of our church. Uh, so um, this is the passage that really birthed the name of our church. It's the very heart of what our dream is as a church. And uh, this teaching series is even named after this passage because this passage of Jesus declaring himself as the vine is at the very heart of what he's trying to say to his followers right before he goes to his own death and resurrection. Um, but our passage this morning, I think what makes it so powerful and so amazing, and we're going to see this hopefully, is that it really, uh, it really reshapes and reframes and gives us a, a completely new way, in a sort, to think about the Christian life. Uh, we, we see in a passage like this how it is that we actually grow, how it is that we actually change, how it is that we actually bring glory to God in our lives, and it all revolves around this idea of abiding in Jesus. It says it over and over again, this idea of abiding in Jesus. I mean, guys, think about this. What this passage is showing you, that at the heart of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian, at the heart of that is, is about receiving. It's about receiving something, but not just something. It's receiving your life from Jesus. It's about receiving. It's not first primarily about doing. It's about receiving. And you can't get that out of order. But it's in our receiving that, that the doing naturally flows in our life. And that's, the, that's this beautiful picture and this convicting thing that we see Jesus talking about here in John chapter 15. And like I said, there's going to be a lot of things that, that, are, that are in this passage that you're going to wish I would talk about. And believe me, I would love to talk about them. Um, but uh, I, I really want to show us this morning what I think is at the heart of what Jesus is saying here in verses 1 through 17. And so what I want you to, to understand is three things that I see, I think are really clear here. One, uh, that you need to abide in Jesus. Like you, you, it's a must, like you need to abide in Jesus. And you see that in verses one through six. But then we also get to see how it is that we actually abide in Jesus. Like how do you do that? You see that in verses seven through 11. And finally, we get to see how, how you can actually know this morning if you are abiding. Like you actually get uh, insight into how you know if you are abiding in Jesus. And you see that in verses 12 through 17. So first we see in verses 1 through 6 this, this, this important thing that you and I need to abide in Jesus. So if you would read with me here, starting in verse 1 of John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit... He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So Jesus starts this section of his teaching telling a parable of sorts about a vine and, and branches. And he starts with this powerful statement in the beginning of, of verse 1. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Okay, this is one of the seven great I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. You can go searching for the other six, but this is one of those I am statements. He says, I am the true vine, and God my Father is the vine dresser. And I think for many of us, we read a verse like this, and it sounds, you know, beautiful and metaphorical and uh, botanical, you know, we're in Oregon, and this is awesome, you know, we connect with this language, and we should, it is, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's so powerful, but to these disciples who are first hearing these words out of Jesus' mouth, this was really jarring, this was like, whoa, because um, the Old Testament frequently, often actually, uses this image of a vineyard or a vine as a symbol for Israel, as a symbol for God's people, God's covenant people, Israel, and you see this really all over the place, but one I'm just going to point out to you in, um, specifically is in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I want to read this for you because I think you get a picture of what Jesus is, or greater understanding as to what Jesus is saying here. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, you see this imagery. It says this, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. So this is showing you God has done everything possible to make this soil and this vineyard successful. And this vineyard is his people and he wants them to yield grapes. It says, but it yielded wild grapes. Uh-oh. Oh now, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This isn't going to be good. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall be pruned, or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. That's not what we want to see, right? We want to see grapes. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And God, he looked for justice, and what did he see? He didn't see justice, he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, what was there? There wasn't righteousness. There was an outcry. You see, God's people, Israel, they were intended by God to be this blessing to the nations. That the other people were meant to come and be a part of God's covenant people, Israel. And that they were to be this, this beautiful vineyard. They were in the Old Testament, this, this purpose of God. That their very purpose of existence was to bear fruit for God. And God saying, you've failed time and time again. And so he judged them, he, he exiled them. 
So these references to Israel as God's vine, they regularly are stressing Israel's failure to produce good fruit. And guys, if you think that you would be better than Israel, we are, we are just like them. We're, we're no better than them. We're not any better of a vineyard or a vine or anything. And so Jesus comes on the scene here, and in direct contrast to Israel, he claims to be what? The true vine. He says, I am the true vine. I will, I will do what, what God, my Father, has always intended God's people to be and to do, that, that Jesus will now be the channel through whom God's blessings are going to flow to all peoples and all nations. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the true vine. No longer do you join the nation of Israel to be a part of God's people, but now you must join your life to Christ. Jesus' claim, guys, is enormous. He's saying if you want to experience life, if you want to experience flourishing and salvation and blessing, if you want to be counted among God's people, then you don't become Jewish. You become Jesus's. You, you come to Jesus and you get grafted into him as the vine. Jesus doesn't get attached to your life. You aren't the vine. He's not a branch. We are the branches. He is the vine. We must be connected to him. And so this is what happens when we actually look to him and we see him as the true life and we, we call on him to forgive us and to save us and we see that we desperately need Jesus. I'm telling you this morning, guys, no matter who you are this morning, like you need Jesus. Like you can't do life apart from him. Uh, Andrew Murray was this, um, he's very long gone. He's no longer with us. Uh, he was a South African um, theologian, and um, I love what he said about this passage. Um, he said, the call of Jesus is twofold. Jesus says, come to me, and Jesus says, stay with me. He says, come to me, and he says, stay with me. Jesus says to you this morning, come to me. Come to me with your sin. Come to me with your shame. Come to me with your guilt, and I will take it away. But then he says, stay with me, remain in me, draw your life from me, get your identity from me. This is the call from Jesus because he is the true vine. This coming and staying with Jesus, it's summed up in this word that's used throughout these verses. It's the word abide. And this word literally means to take up residence in something. It's basically calling you to make your home in Jesus. This is an incredible invitation from God, but as you see in these verses here, it's also a very sobering warning because it says if you don't, you will experience destruction and you will not experience life. You will eventually realize that what you're experiencing is not life at all. It says in verse 2 that if you don't abide in Jesus, you are cut away from the source of true life. It says in verse 4 that the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. And all you got to do is just chop a, a limb off of a tree and you begin to realize that, right? That's, that's just common sense. Verse 5 says that apart from Jesus, the true vine, you can do nothing. This doesn't mean that, that you can't do anything. Clearly, people aren't, who aren't connected to Jesus are walking around this world doing stuff. But what he means here is that nothing means you can do nothing of eternal value, nothing that will have any lasting eternal effects to it, nothing with real true life attached to it. You can't do it. And then verse 6, he eventually reaches the point where he says, you know what happens to, to, to branches that don't remain to the vine? They eventually get so dried up and withered that they're, they're no good for anything other than firewood. And so Jesus talks about eventually uh, what happens to you if you aren't connected to Jesus, the vine. 
is that you will experience divine judgment. That you will experience ultimate death. But that you will not ever have this life that you were intended for with God. It's a very uh, sobering place. I and mean, we, we know this imagery. Like I said, if you go out to a tree and you chop off a, a limb of the tree, you can take that limb, right? And you can, you can try to break it, but it's often difficult, isn't it? You often have to sit there and you have to twist it around and around and it's very flexible and movable. But if you leave that branch on the ground away from its source of life long enough, what happens to that branch? It becomes very brittle. It's very easily broken. It can very easily be lit on fire. This is the same imagery that Jesus is seeing, giving you here, and it's a very sobering reality. See, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to experience true life, you guys, if you're wanting to be healthy, if you're wanting to be full of life and bear fruit that glorifies God, you literally can't do that apart from Jesus. And I think if you know Jesus, you know this experientially. And we all know that we're walking around hungering, our, you know, our, our bellies are, are hungry, if you will, for life. We, we, we're all hungry for life. We all look to things to give us life. And especially if you know Jesus, you know eventually, experientially, that you realize that thing isn't real life. It, it leaves you unsatisfied. You, you look for things to bring you life and you're hungering for life and you realize those things aren't providing you the life that you're looking for. And so we settle for things oftentimes that, that promise to satisfy us, that promise to bring us life, and they really under-deliver because those things aren't Jesus. Uh, I don't know if, if you're like me, but um, at least a lot in my life, you know, I'd get really hungry. And you ever know when you're like really hungry? It's, isn't it terrible to like go to a grocery store or just be around any food? Because if you're like me, what do you do? You just grab the first, closest, nearest, convenient thing to eat, don't you? And so when I'm really hungry, at least in my past, I'm getting better, I guess, uh, it would be terrible if I drove by McDonald's or something. So I'd, I'd be really hungry. I'm like, oh, I'm so hungry. And I'd drive by a McDonald's, and I'm like, oh, I'll just pull in there for a second. You know, you get something. If you eat McDonald's, it's okay. I'm not judging you, okay? But you go through a McDonald's drive through line. You get something in McDonald's. You eat it. And I am telling you, I don't know a single person who's ever gone to McDonald's, eaten it, and was like, you know what? I'm really glad I did that. Like, I just feel, like, more full of life. Let's go run a marathon, right? You don't just feel, like, full of life. Most people who eat McDonald's, you're like, well, it tasted good going down, but now there's just a little sense of, uh, you know, under-delivering, you know, that comes from eating McDonald's. But you all know this, those times when you're really hungry and you're patient enough and you go through the work of, of preparing a really good tasty and healthy meal and you sit down and you feast on it, you're so satisfied and even after the fact, you're like, I'm so glad I ate that. That, that, that really delivered. What I'm saying to you is Jesus is, is a lot more like that, that healthy meal that you go and feast on. He delivers, right? He's real life. But we look to so many other things for a quick fix and every time after the fact, we always go, you know, that, that, that under-delivered. I don't think that's, that's real life. We go to cheap food sources all the time, thinking it's going to do this for us. I mean, you might actually go to food, thinking that it's going to comfort you when you want comfort. But then the next morning, you, you're not feeling so great, are you? Or you might actually go to, like, physical health or fitness or eating, you know, well, and thinking that that's going to solve all your problems and that life is really found there. I mean, let me tell you, healthy living and and eating well and all that, that's so important. Seek that. But, but that's not an ultimate thing in and of itself. You'll eventually see that even that too will fail you. 
mean, you'll, you'll might go to other vices, seeking out, you know, sexual pleasure in a random stranger or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or that, that might feel good for a while. But eventually you'll, you'll find that it's empty, it's dissatisfying, it's hurtful even maybe. You might go to substances or, or some view that you've conjured up of success in your life. You might go through a bunch of religious exercises or you might just try to be better than everybody else that's around you. I could literally go on for days and days and days. What I'm trying to say is what Jesus is saying to you in this parable is that what you're going to is like McDonald's, right? If you're hungry, you'll eat anything but you were meant to feast on Christ. That's where life is ultimately found. Jesus is the meal. We go to him. Guys, you need to see how desperately you need Jesus. You need to abide in Jesus. He is the true vine. He's, he's the only source of life. And if you are desiring God and wanting to be a part of him and his kingdom, make your home in Jesus. You are not the vine. Jesus is the vine. You were made to abide in him. And so secondly, though, I think we see something really helpful. If you believe that, and if you want to abide in Jesus, if you come to him and want to stay with him, right, well, we see how we actually can do this. Look in with me in verse 7. Okay? It says in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full." Uh, I'm guessing that if you've been around church or ministry or Christianity for a little while, you've probably heard this phrase or this concept of abiding in Jesus. And some of you, I love you, you're, you're really artsy and abstract, and uh, you, you just love the abstract realm. You know, you swim in that world, and so you hear abide in Jesus, and you, you just kind of feel like you get it. You're like, oh, that's beautiful, yeah, I just... I get it, I abide in Jesus, you know? And um, that's awesome, okay? Maybe you are. And others of us, though, I think, uh, probably a majority of us, we hear that phrase, uh, abide in Jesus. And I think intuitively, we kind of feel it, or at least we feel like we get it, okay? But at the end of the day, we're like, what in the world does that even mean? Like, how do I abide in Jesus? Like, how do I do that? Like, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I abide in in Jesus. That's too abstract. I think I'm just going to move on. And what I plead with you is please don't move on. Because again, this is like the heart of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian. And I think what's so incredible about this passage is that we actually get to see how you abide in Jesus. What does this even look like and mean? There's two things that we see in this passage that I just read regarding how we abide. And we know that this is giving us the how to abide in Jesus because Jesus in this passage says what? Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. But then he tells you two other things to abide in. And both those things he owns. He says, abide, let my words abide in you and, and abide in my love. He talks about abiding in his words and abiding in his love. You see these words in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
So how does this verse say that you abide? Well, it's by having Jesus' words abide in us. I mean, yes, definitely, he's referring to the red letters that are in your Bible, you know, things that Jesus said, like, let those things just saturate your heart. But what Jesus is talking about is so much bigger, too, because John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the Word made flesh, that he is the Logos, the Word of God, meaning that all of Scripture, the entirety of God's Word, he's calling to have abide in you, the entirety of God's Word. To, to abide in it, let, let the scriptures saturate your heart. Well, why would you need his words to do this? Why, why would this be important? Or, or what, what, is, what is Jesus referring to here? Well, I think most of us would probably jump to a spot where we would think, well, we need his words to abide in us because it's by knowing his words that we know what to do. I need his words in me so I can know how I should be living or what I should be doing. And that's so true. But that's, that's actually falling very short of why we need Jesus' words to abide in us. See, we primarily need God's word in our hearts because you and I, guys, we need to be reminded and reshaped every day as to who we are now in Christ, as to what it is that God has done for us. I need to be reminded of that over and over and over again, and it's only in God's word that I can, I can do that. I need his words shaping my heart, reminding me and, sh- and telling me who I am in Christ. See, in Scripture, we get to learn and rehearse this daily, what Jesus has done for you. And, and, and we have this new identity in him, and it's, it's through his words that we even come to know what our new identity is. See, we need to hear from the very mouth of God who we are. Like, you must hear that. His voice must dominate your life. Because, this is why, guys, we get our sense of worth from from the persons whose opinions we value the most. You always get your sense of worth from the persons whose opinions you value the most. Uh, There are so many different narratives out there about life and about who you are. Uh, There are things that people have said to you over your life that have really stuck with you, things that have probably stung. And some of those things maybe have defined you as a person. You've let them define you because that person's opinion mattered so much to you. And it's completely defined you and shaped with you and it's it's stuck with you. People might have said to you, you know, you're you're a failure, you know, or or, "You're, you're ugly, or no one will ever love you. Or you know what, you've wasted your life. Or someone said to you, you know what, you will never change. And there are all these voices that dominate your life and shape you into who you are as a person. And man, let me tell you, I hear those voices all the time. And I'm telling you that whatever voice matters most to you in life will define you. All the other voices that you hear, they might sting you, but they won't define you. But the voice that matters the most will define you. I'll just, I'll be really honest with you here for a second, okay? Um, I realized a couple of years ago that, no joke, one of my greatest fears in life is if I ever heard somebody say directly to my face or if I heard through the grapevine, like the gossip grapevine, that someone said about me, they said like, oh, I hate Josh. I, I just can't stand him. If, I, if everyone, someone ever said that to me or, or if I just heard that, you know, by word of mouth that someone's like, oh, I hate Josh, 
I just can't stand him. Uh, that, that would really, that's a, that's a big fear of mine, at least in the, in the past. And by God's grace, I feel like I'm growing out of that a little bit. But I, I'm sure um, someone has said that about me, you know. I, I count myself lucky that I haven't heard that yet. I mean, I assume that not everybody likes me. But, but let me tell you, that again, that would sting really bad in my life if, if I heard that from any of you in this room. Literally anybody in this room, if you said that to my face, that, that would hurt, right? That would stick with me, okay? But, but let me tell you, if my wife ever said that to me, if Liz ever said that to me and she meant it, man, that would be really crushing. That would be a little bit harder to get why. Why? Get by. Why? Because her voice matters more in my life than your voice. I'm sorry to tell you. It just does. <laughs> you know? If you're like, oh, I hate, I hate Josh. I can't, I can't stand Josh. That would hurt. But if I went home and Liz is like, I love you. Like that, that provides a sense of security and identity apart from you, that, that's more lasting, it's more significant to me. You see? See, what I'm, what I'm talking about is God's voice living actively in your heart and deep within your bones needs to be the most important voice because it is the most important voice. He's the God of the universe. He created you to be in right relationship with you, and he sent his son Jesus to, to endure the cross and the grave so that you could actually have a right relationship with him. So, so how do you abide in Jesus? Well, you treasure his voice above all other voices, and you need his words abiding in you so that you can seek to hear his voice preached over all those other voices that are saying different narratives to you all the time. And you can't hear that if you're not in God's word. And you can't have God's word in you if, if you're not in it. It's as simple as that. But, but the second thing we abide in, we're told, is love. Look in verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Uh, I don't want to geek out too much with you here, but uh, this is a really important verb in Greek, okay? Um, this phrase where Jesus, this uh, Greek verb, has loved, have I loved, in that verse is so important because that verb is in the aorist tense, okay? And this is crucial that you understand that because in grammar, the aorist tense is a verb that is something that is saying it's, it's past tense. It's past tense, but it's not something that's completed. It's not something that's just finished and done like Jesus isn't saying to you, I, I did love you. No, he's saying, I, I have loved you. But this aorist tense is communicating that the action of that verb is ongoing and it will never end. So this is saying that Jesus has loved you but his love for you wasn't completed, and it's not completed. It doesn't end. It is forever. It is ongoing. It is fixed. His love for you is fixed. And the way that we are to understand his love for us and the way that God loves us, it, the only way that we're to understand that is by way of how much God the Father has loved God the Son. Do you see that? He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So if you want to know how you have been loved by God, you have to look at how God the Father has loved Jesus the Son. That's the only place you can go to understand. You can't look to any other example on this earth. There's no other comparison that you can make that will even come close to helping you understand how God loves you. He's saying, look at how God the Father has loved me, the Son. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me just ask you, have you felt those words deep inside of your heart? I mean, have you felt that deep in your bones? 
abiding in that love, that message. This is what it means to abide in Jesus. It's reminding ourselves constantly, guys, that there's literally nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he does right now. And there's nothing that you have ever done in your life, no secret thing that you're terrified anybody would know about that would ever make him love you less. There's nothing, if you're in Christ, there's nothing that you could ever do that would cause him to love you less. I mean, a lot of us might be sitting here and we're like, well, what if, I, what if I gave away all of my money? Wouldn't God love me more? No, he wouldn't. Isn't that amazing? Well, what if, what if you're like, okay, I will go to the foreign mission field and I will live in a tent amongst a people group where nobody knows about Jesus. I will give up all worldly comfort and I will go be a foreign missionary. Would God then love me more? No, he wouldn't. What, what if you finally began to treat your spouse with grace and mercy? Would God then love you more? No, he wouldn't. He can't. What, what, if you, what if you took out the trash for your roommates instead of just complaining about how nobody takes it out? Well, your roommates would love you more. I'd give you that. But let me tell you, God would not. He wouldn't. What, what if you went an entire week, an entire week, of, of not even having one single lustful thought. I'm not talking about like just going a week without sleeping around or, or looking at pornography or something. I'm talking about not having a single lustful thought. Would, God, would, you, would you be able to walk in here next Sunday and God's like, you know what, I love you way more now, thank you. No, like God cannot love you more. Why? Because God's acceptance of you is based on the fact that Jesus, the true vine, went a lifetime without sinning against God, even in the slightest way. Now, if you look to Jesus and you're grafted into him, the vine, if he's forgiven you, if you believe in him, you are in him, you receive life from him, you receive acceptance from him. Therefore, God could not love you more than he does right now. Why? Because God, the Father, loves Jesus perfectly, and you are in Christ. You are connected to the vine. This, is, this, is, this, is, this will reshape your entire life if you, can, if you can get that. If you can begin to believe and see how loved you are in Christ. We, we need to abide in Jesus. He's the source of true life now and forever. And we begin to see how to abide in Jesus in this passage by having his words abide in us and by abiding in this love, this incredible love. But we also get a final window into knowing if we really are abiding, if we really are abiding. Um, I think there's a lot of people who could read through verse 11 and they would feel like, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm abiding in Jesus, you know? Uh, yeah, I'm totally abiding, I, I read the Bible all the time, I know a lot about God, I know way more than other people do, you know? And I have, I have no doubts that God loves me, okay? But that's not what we see here as, how, as a way that we know. Look in verse 12, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another." 
There is a way to know if you're abiding. And it's everywhere in this passage, even in verses 1 through 11. It says, you will bear fruit. Like you will. You will bear it. It says, we will bear fruit in verse 2, two different times. Jesus talks about fruit in verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. And then climactically here twice in verse 16. That, that, that he is appointed that we would go and bear fruit and that our fruit should abide, that it would remain. Guys, we've really got to get away from thinking that we or somebody else is a Christian just because they say they're a Christian. I know that's hard for some of us. But the Bible is very clear. You will know you're a Christian. You will know that you are abiding in Jesus, what? If you bear fruit. But what is this fruit? I think in, in error, most of us think that fruit is like a, a product or a result. Like, well, I led five people to Christ. That's fruit. Or I planted 10 churches. Or I started this ministry. Or I did 10 Bible studies. Or whatever it is. And I think you can look at all those external things and you would call those things fruit for sure. Like those are God-given good things. But that's not what the fruit is in this passage. That's not what it's talking about. See, the Bible is clear both here and really elsewhere that the fruit that you would bear, that you would produce, that would bring glory to God is Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. Basically, if you abide in Jesus, Jesus will pour out of you. And that's how you'll know. It's exhibiting your, in your own life, you growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. If you look at a place, which many of you maybe already know this, in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, what does it say? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Conversions and baptisms and Bible studies and no. The fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's gentleness. It's faithfulness and it's self-control. See, but I don't even have to go to Galatians to figure this out. You can go to our own passage because in verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that what? His joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's through the Spirit, right? The passage Davy preached on last week, what does Jesus say? My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. His peace. We see faithfulness here because Jesus says, if you are abiding in him and in his love, you're going to keep his commandments. He says that in verse 10. But then we have to ask, well, what are his commandments? Well, he tells you what his commandments are in verse 11. And in verse 17, he says it twice. This is my commandment that you do what? You love one another. You love. It's love. It's, it's fruit of the Spirit stuff. Do you see? When you abide in Jesus, when you make your home in Jesus, Jesus pours out of you. Jesus will pour out of you. What you make your home in will naturally pour out of you. It just, it just will. Let's just say you went up to somebody today and you asked them, hey, uh, where's, where's home for you, you know? Where are you from? And they had a cowboy hat on. They had cowboy boots and some really tight Wranglers. They had a piece of straw hanging out of their mouth, some spurs on and a whip, you know, and they were like patting the back of a horse <laughs> while they were talking to you. And in a great southern accent, they said, I can't do a southern accent. I'm sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> I was going to try. I just, I really can't. They're like, I'm from London. Born, bred, raised, and I still live there. The heart of London, downtown London, Right? They said that to you, you would have some follow-up questions, right? 
I mean, you, that would jog some like interest, some curiosity, wouldn't it? Right? You wouldn't just naturally go, oh, of course. Yeah. London, right? That's where you're from. Why? Because we know just so naturally within us that what is home to you, where you make your home, pours out of you in a certain way. It defines you. It shapes you. You, you exude what it is that you make your home in. We do that even geographically, but especially when we're talking about our life in Christ. We can, we can literally look at the fruit of our life, and it will reveal what it is that we're abiding in. So if, 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 what, I'm, what if, I'm, if what I'm producing is bitterness, complaining all the time, anger, unrighteous anger, I guess I should say, a lack of love for people, I go, I'm not, that's not Jesus. I'm not abiding in Jesus. I'm not making my home in him. Because when we abide in Jesus, uh, we prove that we are abiding in him by the fruit that, that pours out of our lives, you guys. See, if you're plugging into Jesus, he doesn't stay hidden inside of you. He, his life will pour out of you. His love will pour out of you. That's what he says. He says, obey my commandments if you, if you love one another. His love should be pouring through your life. You are a conduit, if you will, of the life and the love of Jesus to other people. You're not a holding tank. Like if you have a fish tank of water and you don't have a filter or anything in there, what happens to that water? It just gets really gross and green and dirty and ugly, right? But, it, but, if, but if you're in a river, you know, and, and, and a river's flowing nice and quickly and there's bends in the river and all these different things, right? That water that's moving, that's a lot better quality water, generally speaking, right? It doesn't get all murky and gross, right? In the same way, we aren't meant to be a holding tank of the life of Jesus. When we abide in Jesus, we become that bend in the river. We become that conduit of his life to other people, so you weren't meant to abide in Jesus' love just like a holding tank holds water. You are meant to abide in Jesus' love like a conduit of that love. And so in a very real and tangible way, how can you know that you're abiding? Well, it's through love, Jesus says in verses 12 through 17. It's by you seeing that you are loving one another as he has loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved you? We have to look to the cross, right? We have to look to the cross. He says here that he, love is actually laying down his life for other people, and that's what love looks like now for us. And so we see, well, what is love? How has Jesus loved us? Well, we see in the cross, we see it defined, we see it experienced, we see Jesus laying down his life for us. We see Jesus denying himself comfort, guys, so that you could be comforted, truly comforted. We see Jesus in the cross giving up his life so that you could begin to experience life. We see Jesus denying himself of present joy and enduring the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Why? So that you could have abiding and lasting joy in your life. Jesus experienced divine judgment so that you wouldn't have to be tossed aside like this branch in verse 6 that would ultimately receive divine judgment. When, when we were unfaithful to Jesus, guys, and he was faithful to us, even in his moments of greatest need on the cross, so that we could now exude and exhibit his faithfulness. Guys, Jesus laid down his life in love so that you could abide in God's love for you this morning. Think about it. Jesus wasn't a holding tank of God's love. He didn't go, the Father loves me. This is amazing. I'm going to keep this in. He was the bend in the river. He was the conduit of that love that pours into your life so that it could pour out into the lives of other people. How do you know you're abiding? 
We look for fruit. And contextually here, it's love. Contextually in verse 11, it's joy. This will be a part of our lives. I just feel like I need to say this. Let me just say this. Don't equate fruit with ease. I think a lot of us, we plug into Jesus, we, we put our faith in him, we think, my life's going to be great now. Because if you look back in verses 2 through 3, you see something really important. You see that if we're going to bear fruit, God is the good gardener and vine dresser. What does he do? He will prune you. He will prune you. And pruning, guys, that's not a, a lovely thing all the time. It'll be a very painful thing when God, the vine dresser, takes that knife close and he cuts things away from your life. But it's something we must understand that God will never take things out of your life. He will never cut things away. He will never prune things out of your life that are a loss to keep. He'll only, he only cut things away that are a loss to keep and a gain to lose. He always does it so that we would bear more fruit, healthier fruit. So there might be times when God is cutting things out of your life and doing things that are painful, when, when he's doing things that are hurt, that don't, that don't often make sense to us. But I just need to tell you, you can trust that whatever God is cutting away is only for your overall health and vibrant life as you abide in Jesus. But more than that, you can trust that God hasn't left you. Because just think of the imagery, the vine dresser, the gardener. He is never closer to the vine. He is never taking more thought over its long-term health and vitality than when he has the knife in his hand. That's when he's always closest to the vine, caring about its health and vitality. So if you abide in Jesus, don't equate that with ease. It might be painful at times, but it will only bring about greater fruit in your life. Guys, this is like the, the core of the Christian life, I'm telling you. The Christian life is primarily about receiving. But in our receiving, now we have something to give, something worthwhile to give. And every time we receive, it's for the purpose of giving. It's so that the life of Jesus would pour out of us. Guys, you need to abide in Jesus. You can't experience life apart from him. You need to. You, and we do that by letting his words and his love abide in us. And we'll know that we're doing that by the fruit in our lives. I just want to end with this. It's a prayer that I, I probably pray at least every other day for the last five years. I'm going to put it on the screen. I just want to pray this over us as we go into our time of response. And I think it's praying prayers like this where we're seeking to abide in his words and abide in his love. And so it's my prayer that you would begin to pray a prayer like this in your own life as well. So if you would, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pray this even though it'll be on the screen for you. God, I thank you that in Jesus, there's nothing I can do that will make you love me more and nothing that I have done that will cause you to love me less. God, your presence and your approval are all we need for everlasting joy. Lord Jesus, as you've been to us, may we be to others. And Father, may we measure your compassion as we look at the cross. And may we measure your power by the resurrection. 
Oh God, would you cut away the things in our life today? Would you prune us? The things that are really stealing and robbing us of the life and joy that we're meant to have. God, that we might bear more fruit, that we might exhibit you, Lord Jesus, to others around us. God, would you, would you please um, just smother those lies of that we often believe, things that will give us life that just don't. Would you more deeply ingrain in our hearts, God, how much we need you and how much we have you and how present you are with us. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.